pastoral letters. So it may seem odd to be preaching as a pastor about pastoring. Maybe First Timothy should be, you know, best taught in a in a seminary where they're training men to be pastors. But I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit intended when he placed First and Second Timothy and Titus into his holy word, caused his church to recognize very early on that these were inspired letters, that these were important for the church. And I think I've alluded to the reason why I think this over the course of this whole session and really over the past 26 years. And that is because the pastors, the elders of the church, are to be raised up from the midst of the congregation. And therefore the congregation needs to understand what to expect, what God expects of the pastor. And I have mentioned in the course of this particular study that this is something that Fellowship Bible Church needs to be thinking about. As we get older, we do think of what we will leave behind, the legacy that we will leave behind. And if we look at the history of the church, and of churches in particular, we see that very few of them were actually successful in passing the baton to the next generation. Many of you have read the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. And you think of the Metropolitan Tabernacle and that, that, that grand church in which the gospel was preached so faithfully for so many years by Spurgeon. But if you read of the history after Spurgeon's death, you'll see that the influence of that church waned very quickly. And so we need to consider what comes after us. And, and if we do, in fact, agree, and, and I hope we do, that the scripture teaches that, that God will raise up from within the flock men to oversee. In, in other words, that we don't resort to a pastoral search committee or to applications and to interviews and to test sermons. Then y'all need to be looking around. Prayerfully, in the word, like the pastoral epistles, looking for the men whom God will raise up to replace me and Mark and David in, in time. What, what is it that the pastor is supposed to be about? And, and supremely, and, and I think we see a lot of things in the pastoral epistles that we say, oh, oh, these are the qualifications of an elder, for example. Well, actually, they're the qualifications of a believer. We don't actually see anything that is unique, except perhaps an ability to teach. That's about the only thing that we see in the personality, the sanctified personality of a pastor that is different from what is required of every one of us. But I think in looking at this particular section, and verse 6 in especially, that we do see one aspect of the pastor. Again, something that is required of every believer, but in special measure, and that is that he is a servant. Now, that's a, that's a concept that is very un-American. Uh, in fact, um, in our own entertainment, our video entertainment, the television and movies, the concept of a servant is, is always from the BBC. You know, it's from the British Broadcasting Corporation, not, not from NBC or ABC or CBS or any other American, because we're not servants. But if you look at British television and 
and you, you look at um, British history, you'll find that the concept of servanthood um, is treated much differently there. Mark alluded in, in Sunday School last week to the program and, and the novels, uh, Jeeves and Wooster. Bertie Wooster being a, a, a wealthy, basically ne'er-do-well uh, Brit from the 1920s era, and Jeeves is his gentleman's gentleman, his valet or valet. But you notice as you, as you read those or as you watch those programs that there, there is no denigration, there is no um, humility, as it were, in Jeeves for being a servant. And in that culture, a gentleman's gentleman was actually a, a position of, of great compensation, but also of a certain amount of pride. Now, I know servanthood and pride seem rather odd, but in, in coming at it from an American, we find the concept of servanthood to be an offense, not something to be proud of. Some of you perhaps have, have watched the, um, the series The Crown, dealing with the the life and the reign of Elizabeth II, the Queen of, of uh, the United Kingdom. And, and they are definitely um, auxiliary characters, but in the, in the whole presentation, you, you do see servants, men and women who have served the royal family for years. Many times you see families who have served the same family for generations. And they take a certain pride in being their servants and in doing it well. And they refuse to be insulted or put down because they are servants. Now, again, I, I'm not suggesting in any way that the biblical definition of a servant includes pride, especially not evil, selfish, self-centered pride. But notice the difference between the attitudes of some cultures versus others. We, we look at servanthood as being something that is demeaning. We don't reward it with high pay. And we tend to treat those who are servants, whether they be flight attendants or waiters and waitresses or, or other people who serve, nurses, for example, we often hear of them being treated with contempt. But you didn't do that to a gentleman's gentleman. You didn't do that to a royal butler. These were positions of honor. And, and I would submit to you that, that that is closer to the truth of who we are, and especially of who ministers of God's Word are, than our concept of, of self-worth and of independent um, identity and of being served rather than serving which clearly is not the Spirit of Christ, who came not to be served, but rather to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The psalmist writes, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their master, and as the eyes of the maid to the hands of her mistress, so also the servants of God, the children of God, looked to him for grace and blessing. Now the concept there is, is again somewhat foreign to us, and and the little research that I have done on that is, is that in a well-run household, there isn't a lot of speaking between the masters and the servants. 
especially when there are house guests. So that, for example, if the master of the house is, is holding a dinner, there isn't a lot of communication, verbal, between the master and the serving staff. It is more signals, like a hand signal or a look. The mistress will give a look with her eye and the, and the maid or the butler will know what that means and will address the issue silently, almost unseen. And that's what we are to be in the church. We do not call attention to ourselves, but rather serving one another, serving the Lord, as, as Paul refers, a good servant of Christ Jesus, not ostentatious, not drawing attention to oneself. Paul writes, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Servanthood is a skilled craft. It can actually be, as I've mentioned, a source of pride. It is something that we can learn to do well, something that we read about in households that have servant staffs, that there is actually promotion within the servant ranks. And those who have learned their serving well train others after them. Again, this is, this is somewhat foreign to our American concept because I think it may be the hardest occupation for us to be proud of. By definition, it is humbling. You are serving someone else. Someone else has the position above you as master. But what we don't realize and what we rail against, I think, so much as Americans, is that is always true. Even if you are on top of the human food chain, you are but a servant to God, who is master of all. We just reject the truth. We live in an, an unreality that, in fact, we are the captain of our own ship, the master of our own destiny. We are the ones who sing the, the self-made hymn, I did it my way. When in reality, we, we serve all the time. Most of us have jobs. Even if we have our own businesses, we are at the service of the public that keeps us in business. We have to serve one another in our families if they're not to be utterly miserable places. So we're, we're not nearly as independent as we like to think. And it would be better for us to come to the true understanding of Scripture. And that is that we are called to be willing servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two things I think the believer must learn and accept with regard to servanthood. First of all, that serving can be a very noble profession. And if the master be noble, it will be the most noble of professions. If the servant is serving a man, a master, who is himself good, then the service itself is good. And, and none serve a better master than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second thing, that no service of Jesus Christ will ever fail to be rewarded. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Royal service, service like Jeeves, a gentleman's gentleman, these were occupations that were compensated quite nicely within the society in which they are found. 
And, and even in retirement, these servants were well rewarded. If they did their job well, they were well rewarded. We're promised that if we are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, in our service to Jesus Christ, our toil will not be in vain. And so we, we come to the conclusion that, that it is a noble profession, and in fact, in a, if it can be in a good way, a source of gracious pride to be called a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not mercenary servanthood where we're doing something in order to get something. That's called eye service. Paul uses that word that we, we serve our masters only when they're watching. Or we serve our Lord only because of what we can get out of it. There, there's an entire teaching that is prevalent now in the Christian church that actually inculcates a mercenary spirit within believers. And that is that you, that you accept Jesus and by His grace you are saved. He becomes your Savior. But it is up to you whether you make Him your Lord. And that whatever you do for Jesus is, is for the rewards that you will get in heaven. In other words, there's a, there's a, a quid pro quo. I do this, he gives me that. It's somewhat like um, what we were taught as children, you know, about Santa Claus. You know, he's, he's not going to give you anything except coals and switches if you're bad. You, you have to be a good boy, a good girl, in order to get gifts. It's, it's kind of, okay, I'm going to be good because it's December. <laughs> we ever think about that kind of teaching? And yet that's the mercenary spirit that is, that is really taught in this whole lordship debate. And that, that is that you, you really only do good things when you realize, hey, I can get something out of this. But that is not what Paul teaches Timothy to be. Rather, it's a, it's a transformation of the heart through the renewing of the mind. We, we read the word and we come to the realization that as created beings, we are already servants of the one who created us. And then we look around with, with open and honest eyes and realize most of our life constitutes service in some way or another. And therefore we, we embrace the blessing, the grace that has allowed us to be in service to Jesus Christ. And that service will manifest itself in service to other human beings. Jonathan Edwards said that and I'm paraphrasing, I, I couldn't find the actual quote in my quote box. But what he said basically was that God has no need of anything from us. And so he constitutes our fellow man or our neighbor to be the recipient of our service. And so service to Jesus Christ manifests itself as service to other human beings. However... Not all service to other human beings constitutes service to Jesus Christ. That's the error of the social gospel. That if I just do good to other people, I am doing good to Jesus Christ. Now that, that's not how it works. We first recognize ourselves to be servants of Jesus Christ, and therefore, He is the one who sets our agenda. In the social gospel, we set His agenda. We say that, that the work of God 
means abolishing slavery. The work of God means uh, uh, prohibiting alcoholic beverages. The, the work of God means soup kitchens for the poor or socialism in government or, or whatever. We set the agenda. Who's the master? Well, the servant there. But when we recognize that we are servants of Jesus Christ, we recognize that he sets the agenda. The Pope has, a, has an interesting title that he has claimed ever since uh, Pope Gregory the Great in the late 6th century, and that is the servant of the servants of God. Now, every time I read that, I, I want to laugh. It rings rather hollow when you consider the pomp and the ceremony and the arrogance of the papacy. And even his once-a-year washing of others' feet is orchestrated. Um, and it, and it's, he's, he's not really the servant of the servants of God. However, the title was adopted by Gregory because of the conspicuous arrogance of the patriarch of Constantinople at the time, who was, in fact, claiming to himself a great deal of human adoration and prerogative. And so the Bishop of Rome, and Gregory was the first also uh, to use the title Papa or Pope. So he was a very significant person in the history of the church. He said that, that what the, 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 the Metropolitan of Constantinople was doing was arrogance before God. We are not to be worshipped. We are servants. And he said that the Pope is the servant of the servants of God. And so it's, it's still an accurate description of believers as servants of God, foremost among, or perhaps we should say rearmost, are the ministers of the Word. In fact, if you look at the Scripture, the only people that are behind us are the apostles. And Paul said they were the off-scouring of the earth. And they were the least regarded and the most persecuted of all believers. Jesus said, He who would be the greatest shall be the servant of all. And so this, this whole concept of servanthood is so wrapped up in what it means to be a believer because that is what our Lord was, a servant, and took upon Himself the form of a servant, the lowliest form. We, we can't get around it. We can't get away from it. We certainly can't reject it because it offends our American sensibilities. John Piper wrote a book a number of years ago. Um, well, that doesn't matter. The title of the book, Brothers... We are not professionals. And he's talking to pastors. He is himself a pastor. Uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church, I think, is in Milwaukee or Minneapolis or some such place up there in the cold regions of the world. He starts out in page 1, chapter 1. We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry the mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. It is not the mentality of the slave of Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence and the heart of the Christian ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. That's very provocative. Brothers, we are not professionals, but we have inherited in the pastoral ministry of the 21st century a career-based ministry. Just like any other profession, we, we now have to go to school for it in order to be recognized 
by most people as a pastor, as a preacher, you need to have a seminary degree, a master of divinity, which itself is a presumptuous title. And so we've made a profession out of the ministry of God's Word so that our young people now go and, and they have, they have a, a path of life that I've, I've frequently called, you know, you go to Bible college and then you go to seminary, then you become a youth pastor, then you become an associate pastor, then you become a senior pastor, and after a while you become a senior's pastor, and then they just put you out to pasture. You have a benefits package, and you have a retirement plan. How is it that this is not simply the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry? And they move around like CEOs of corporations. You, you do not do all that I mentioned in the same congregation, but you're rather promoted to a larger one. I've rarely seen anyone move to a smaller church. And I have seen churches abandoned, by their elders, because there was a bigger church who called them. Now I think we have to say they texted them. I got the text of God. You know, it's just like it was and it is when I was in engineering. You know, you get, you get your promotions and you get your raises and you're vested in your 401k and you have your health plan and you have your retirement account. Brothers, we are not professionals. And I agree with Piper that the professionalizing of the ministry of God's Word has destroyed it. It has destroyed it at its core because we're no longer servants. We are to be served. I mentioned in, in um, teaching on Thursday night about it, the, the, the pastoral ministry of the church that within the Presbyterian church, the pastor does not even answer to the congregation but rather to the session. He's not even responsible to the people he pastures. He is responsible to the other ones, his own clique, his own guild, as it were. It's a very sad situation. But it manifests itself in that career ladder that I mentioned. We are not professionals, but neither are we priests. And this is the other aspect that, that, has, that has crept into the Christian ministry many generations ago. Titles. I haven't researched it myself, but where did we come up with reverend? The title means to be revered. I thought Jesus said, call no man father. I thought he indicated that perhaps we shouldn't ever set anyone up on a pedestal by giving him a title such as reverend. Clerical robes. What's up with that? I mean, really, what is up with that if that is not priestcraft? How is it that a man should dress differently because he's standing here? I, I don't think the prophets did. Or when they did, they, <laughs> they didn't really follow the, 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 the exalted nature of clerical robes. It's as if we Protestants just can't get those elements of papalism out of us. And so we have to have the collars and the robes. I think we would wear the mitres if we think we could get away with it. I find it all very disgusting. 
Even things like reserved parking. Oh, that's servanthood. <laughs> you know, you go to a church reserved for pastor. My parents didn't name me pastor. <laughs> you know, people say, they call, I, just the other day, I was having lunch with somebody and the guy called me pastor. It's not my name. Since when did that become a name? I know often it's very well-meaning, but do you see what we're doing here? We're, we're establishing an expectation among the pastoral ministry, the ministry of the word, that is not biblical. And instead of being truly the servants of the servants of God, we're becoming mediators, we're becoming priests, we're even dressing like it. And all these things are wrong. Peter said that we are to shepherd the flock of God among you, not as lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I would like to go to a church, a large church, and find the reserved parking for the pastor at the back of the lot. That would be the most indicative of a biblical pastoral ministry. Or a church in which if the pastor wanted the first one, that itself would be a problem, but let him get there earlier. Rather than just show up whenever and know that his space will be open. Many things are needed for the life of the church, the congregation. We read about that in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians especially, but also in Romans and Ephesians. Paul talks about all the different things that are provided by every joint and ligament for the building up of the body itself in love. But the error that has crept into the church and constantly is at the door and at the windows, almost coming up through the floorboards, is the expectation that the elders or the pastors are responsible to provide all that is needed for the congregation. And we've seen this ourselves. We've heard it as pastors. You've seen it in other churches. You've seen it in history where basically the congregation becomes nothing more than an audience or the beneficiaries of the mediatorial office of the pastor. Even the, the idea of raising one's hands during the benediction is papal. Anything that elevates any one of us above the others is not only unbiblical, it is blasphemous. For there is what one mediator between God and man. There's only one man who lifts his hands in blessing upon us, and that is Jesus Christ. And, and so, what is it that makes a good pastor? What is it that will make a good pastor for Fellowship Bible Church in this generation and the next and the one after that? Or if we go to 2 Timothy and read about taking what Paul taught Timothy and teaching faithful men who will teach others after, and that is, if you point out to the congregation sound doctrine, faithful teaching, the Word of God, then you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In a large household, the good servant is the one who performs his or her task faithfully and with increasing skill. If you, if you do observe, and, and we only can do this at a distance in our day and in our country, but if you read about the servant staffs of large royal or noble households, you will see that every one 
servant had his or her function. And to be a good servant didn't mean to do the functions of the other servants, but rather to do yours well and even better the next day. That is what God requires of us, but also that is what he empowers us through the Holy Spirit, through the charismata. Not that we should do everything that needs to be done. That's not a good servant because no one can do it. And in doing so, you interfere with what others are called to do. So that not only do you not perform the service as it should be performed, you get in the way of the one who is supposed to. And so the whole thing becomes a muck-up. But when everyone, just like a body, when every joint and ligament does what it's supposed to do, the body is in strength and health, and it grows, the church grows in grace. The proper expectation for each servant along the same lines is not set by the other servants. That's an important concept in the church. The expectation for each and every one of us is not set by the rest of us. The expectations for each and every servant is set only by the master. And we must resist the temptation and really the oppression of expectations that are false placed upon us by even our brethren. And this is especially true in the pastoral ministry where the expectations are the greatest and often the most unbiblical we must resist the pressure, the oppression of misplaced expectations set upon us by our brethren. Every church wants to have a famous pastor. Every church wants to land somebody who has been published, someone who speaks at conferences, someone who, who is a name, and with that name will draw others to their church. This is going on today as it has Throughout history, there were men in the 2nd and 3rd century who were elders, who were, who were coaxed away from one congregation to another because of their eloquence, because of their writing skill, even because of their wealth and their connections. So that in the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, that whole thing was condemned. That a man who was an elder in a congregation, if he left that congregation, he was excommunicated. And the church that coaxed him away, that poached him, was also excommunicated. It was considered a crime, an ecclesiastical crime, for an elder to leave his charge or for another congregation to tempt a man away. A wholehearted pursuit of good servanthood is to be the goal of every believer. Understanding the gifts that God has given you to the best of your ability, that is the realm of your service within the household of God. And rather than seeking to do others' work, the greatest blessing is to do ours well, each one of us. Next week, Lord willing, Paul will, will take us to the, to the topic of distractions as he does with Timothy here in this passage. He says, Pay, have nothing to do with worldly fables. He'll talk about controversies, and, and uh, we read about that in chapter 6 this morning, that we're to stay away from those things. There are tremendous distractions 
But success in this endeavor is crucial for the congregation. He says in verse 16, and this is why I read all the way down there, because this is a pretty powerful passage. Pay, a close, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you, were, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us wisdom according to your word. That you would teach us the true nature and character of biblical servanthood. That we would each one of us acknowledge ourselves to be your servant and the servant of one another. That you would enable us to see what role we have in your household. And then by the grace and the empowering of your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to do that task well. Father, our supreme goal is to hear those words from the lips of our Master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Master. We ask that you would strengthen us to this task Again, for your glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, for the edification of his church, and for our each and individual good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction from Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul writes, may the, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, and into the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.